Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Welcome back to True Crime Uncensored. I'm the legendary Burl Bearer. Howard Lapidus, manager of the stars here. Matt Allen producing. And on the phone, a woman who knows all the inside dirt on America's women's prisons. Vicki Law, who wrote the award-winning study on all this. Women's resistance behind bars, whatever the name of it is, and all sorts of other cool studies. What struck you the most about what was going on inside for women in, in prison and in jail? Well, one of the things that really struck me in terms of women was how empty the visiting room was in comparison to men. So the bulk of my friends who were arrested were men. So I would go to Rikers and go see them, and the waiting room was always packed. You know, the visiting room was always packed. You wait three or four hours for your visit because there just weren't enough tables and chairs and not enough ways to, like, move people in and out quickly. And in the women's visiting room, there was virtually nobody there. Like, they just weren't getting the same types of support that the men were getting when they went to jail and then to prison. So that was one of the first things that struck me with that. And that struck you, and did you have a why for that? You know, did you go why, and did did you get an answer? I don't think I, I really felt to ask why at the time. I was a teenager, and it just struck me as weird. But it wasn't until years later that I started thinking, well, why is that the case? And that was when I realized that the way that we set up society is that when a man goes to prison, his family stands by him, you know, or his wife or his, you know, girlfriend stands by her man. And we don't have that same notion about when a woman goes to prison like you stand by your wife or you stand by your girlfriend why is you know that? it's a, why? It's goes a cultural to... thing i guess hmm? but i'm just wondering why yeah it must be something that's just built into our particular culture in this country i think so and i think a lot of times like women are kind of seen as like well you broke the rules you went to jail you know like why should i you know why should i go see you why should i you know stay in touch with you as opposed to women who seem to stand by their man and slept to Rikers Island or the upstate with their children to go see their loved ones every single week. But it doesn't happen with the women. Now, I've, I've been in some women's prisons, not as an inmate, of course, but uh, I've been there doing research or interviews or one more <clears throat> teaching classes or something. And some of them could look pretty darn nice cosmetically. Mm-hmm. But then when I find out what they're schedule is like or is giving an example you might give me better ones than this they got to get up at six o'clock in the morning but at four o'clock in the morning they wake everybody up to do a a, a cell check yes or they'll wake everybody up at four thirty in the morning for breakfast and then they'll you know like and then you go back to sleep or you have to be awake and also when women's prisons too remember that they're really far away from a lot of the areas where oh, they originally yeah. come from, from with their families, which not only makes it hard for their families to go see them, but it also makes it hard to get any sort of programming there because if somebody's going to volunteer their time, they're going to volunteer their time at a prison that's nearer their home rather than, say, drive five to six hours out of their way once a week to, well, yeah, the, the, you know, to a program. When I went to the prison where uh, wacko Rhonda Glover Murderess was to interview her for my book, Fatal Beauty, I was going to plug for one of my books in there, uh, it took forever to get there. It was out in the middle of, well, it was in the middle of nowhere, but you could see signs to nowhere from there. Speaking of plugs, wow. plugs, speaking of plugs we haven't once plugged her books. Well, let's mention it. Well, name, name a book, name a study, name something we can hype. 
Okay. Wait, my book or oh, Rhonda Glover's book? No, no, your book. My, your book. We're my here, book is Resistance Behind you. Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women. So it's specifically about the resistance and the organizing that's going on inside women's jails and prisons across the country. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about the book. So when I started getting interested specifically in women's prisons issues, I wasn't seeing anything that was pointing to the fact that women were resisting or organizing behind bars. So I wasn't seeing anything that would correlate, say, like, be the women's equivalent of Attica or of some of the organizing that had been going on in California in the 1970s. And so I started to ask myself, well, why aren't we seeing this? And I couldn't believe that it was because... 100,000 women behind bars all sat on their hands and said, this is okay, we'll put up with this. Yeah, yeah, we'll put up with said, well, what are well, we not well, seeing? Well, what is it they have to put up with? Let's let the audience know what kind of crap. I mean, they're there to be, you know, supposedly a penitentiary to make, become penitent or to protect society mm-hmm. from them or for, to, to pay for the crimes, which is fine. But when it crosses the line where there's rape, where there's abuse, where there's all sorts of bizarre stuff, give us a, an insight into the bizarre stuff, the stuff that shouldn't be going on. So we're seeing in almost all of the women's prisons that there is, you know, systemic sexual abuse happening by staff. So unlike the movies that you might see about women in prison, it's not necessarily women preying on other women. It's staff members using their pow- the power that they have over the women that they're guarding to either pressure women into having sexual relationships with them or outright coercing or assaulting them into having sex with them. And when a woman reports having been sexually assaulted or sexually coerced, she's placed in solitary confinement. So if you think about this, why are we putting women who are rape victims or anyone who's a rape victim, you know, into solitary confinement where they're locked into a small cell 23 hours a day? They don't have any contact with other people that might be able to support them through having been assaulted. They are at the mercy of prison staff who might be very mad that she ratted on their colleague about having either been in a sexual relationship or having having been assaulted by that. So there's a huge disincentive, and she might not be able to, say, phone her children or get visits from her family. Even when a woman gets pregnant behind bars from either being sexually assaulted or from being involved in a sexual relationship with a staff member, even then, something doesn't happen in terms of systemically figuring out, well, what's going on and how can we stop this? So recently, in January, the U.S. Department of Justice issued a memo stating that Alabama's women's prison, the Tutwiler Prison for Women, had rampant sexual abuse that actually violates women's constitutional rights against um, against unfair um Against unfair punishment. punishment. Yeah. yeah, cruel and unusual punishment. And they listed all the different ways in which women were watched by guards, grouped by male guards, um, not allowed to shower or be on the toilet, you know, in privacy, how they were out and out sexually assaulted, how they were coerced into having sex, either because they feared punishment or because there's just that dynamic between guards and prisoners where People in prison don't feel like they have the ability to say no, or if they think that they're entering into a consensual relationship when they try to get out, they Uh, suddenly realize it's not so consensual anymore and that the other person holds all the power. And talking with a woman who was in prison in the 1990s in the Alabama Tutwiler system, she said this has been going on for decades. 
we've been complaining about this forever and ever, so, so, and nobody listened to us. So, of course, like, they get in trouble for complaining. Is Howard, this, is this what's going yeah. on across the country? Uh, is, uh, I mean, I, I want to say this properly, but are these prisons become sex pits? I mean, they, I don't know if you could quite characterize them as sex pits, but they definitely become the kind of place where. It's the equivalent of, like, you know, like, women don't walk down a dark alley. You know, it's like, woman, you don't want to go to prison because there are so many different ways that you can be assaulted or abused. And it's mainly by staff. But uh, Yeah, it's not Ida Lupino. No, no. Well, you're not getting that. No, that's ridiculous. But but it's it's more staff than it is uh, inmate-to-inmate? Yes. In women's prisons, it is more staff than it is... Uh, the other women around them. So other women may, you know, like they like they do on the outside, you know, manipulate relationships or have relationships and break them off and do all the things that we do on the outside when we have our messy human relationships. But it's not that same power dynamic of you will do this, and if you stop, then I will write you up. I will put you in solitary confinement. I will make sure that you don't get to see your family. Or I, if it's in a state system that has more than one women's prison, I might send you to the worst women's prison. In New York in 2003, a woman reported being sexually assaulted while she was on the honor dorm at Bedford Hills, which is the maximum security prison for women here in New York State. And after she reported being sexually assaulted, she was taken away from the honor dorm, placed in solitary confinement, and then shipped to Albion Prison, which is way up north by the Canadian border, where basically her family would be unable to see her because... She was nine hours away, and she didn't have access then to any of the people around her who might try to help her, either by, like, letting her family know what happened to her or even being comforting presences after she had been assaulted. So they punished her by taking her away from this honor dorm, putting her in solitary, and then basically isolating her and punishing her by sending her further away. So so the Hollywood um, titillating uh, women's prison... Uh, lesbian sex scenes that exist, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's that's the picture that's been painted by Hollywood, but that's not that that, that picture is smudged, correct? No, that is that is not. I mean, Hollywood sells movies, and I don't know how many movies one would actually want to see that depict this grim reality where you go to prison and you you know, and a guard forces himself on you or you go to prison and you don't have enough sanitary napkins but a guard says well if you do x y or z sexual act then maybe i'll like you know like get you some more sanitary napkins and maybe i'll throw in an orange I'm a, or, you I'm, know like I'm a like z- that kind I'm, of bartering for I'm a, small I'm a, necessities i'm a z man just so you know that's, okay. what does that mean <laughs> I, I was, just I was going to say, leave it to your imagination. I'm sure I, I, that, you know, any combination thereof is probably being proposed. I was just being funny. Oh, I get it now. I was being funny, bro. Uh, oh, okay. I was attempting to, to find some levity into what is a very, very serious uh, subject that we're talking about. Well, so meanwhile, you've got uh, thousands or hundreds or tens of thousands of women in women's prisons across America who are being treated like crap. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one thing to be incarcerated and serve your time. It's another thing to be abused and manipulated and it's mistreated. It's awful, by the way. I mean, it's it's it's, uh, it's, it's a national that. insult. It uh, makes America look really, really bad. So, and it's been yeah. going on decade after decade after decade without a stop. Yeah. And and I, I know it's your mission to help stop it. You know, it's kind of like mo- you know moving a baby, uh, moving an aircraft carrier with your baby finger. It's it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. So, but, but you can't do it alone, which is where the organize, organize, organize comes in. Yes, 
And I mean, we've seen women inside actually organize as well. So in Michigan, Michigan in the 1990s had the dubious distinction of being the state with the most sexual assaults in its women's prison system. So considering that, you know, there are sexual assaults and sexual abuse in all of the women's prisons, to be the state that has it, you know, that is the top, (laughs) says something. But the women organized, and they filed a a couple of class action lawsuits around the sexual assault and abuse, and they finally won concessions from the prison that they actually settled with all 500 or so of the women who had signed on to the lawsuit, something to the tune of $4 million, and then it was divvied up among the women with some formula as to, like, if you were, you know, like, say, actually sexually assaulted and raped, you got, you know, like, X amount. If you were groped, you got this amount. You got, you know, but so the women all got some form of monetary settlement, but they also then forced the Michigan Department of Corrections to implement a policy that men could no longer be alone with women prisoners, like, say, in hallways where, like, they were leading them from, like, say, the medical unit to the housing unit or the housing unit to the, you know, like, the place outside where they might put them in a van to go to court or any of the – or they couldn't be in the shower areas. They couldn't be in the toilet areas. They couldn't be in their housing units after a certain time. Um, They weren't allowed to – search a woman anymore so they weren't allowed to then say take out their anger or abuse women under the guise of pat searching them in which they would put their hands on people to frisk them supposedly for weapons but many of the male staff would use this as an opportunity to grope women's breasts to grope their buttocks you know and to do all sorts of things and so they weren't allowed to do that anymore i didn't think that uh, i'm sorry how naive despite my true crime background for many years i didn't realize that that they even allowed that i mean i thought it always had to be women with the women you would think that would just be the, the sort of common sense thing but no they actually do allow in many states they actually do allow men to search women in some states they don't as a matter of practice because they want to avoid similar types of lawsuits. But in Michigan, up until, I believe, 2009, they were allowed to do this. And in New York State, until sometime in, like, the mid-1970s or 1980s, when women also filed a lawsuit, they were allowed to do this as well. I want to be as as, uh, respectful as I can with this question. Help me out. Um, How severe are these checkups you know when, when they check i mean what how far do they go i mean like for cavity searches i don't know i'm asking a question because yeah. i, I so, don't know so there's, I, there's two types of searches there's the pat search where the person the woman is still fully clothed and somebody's supposed to pat them down you know and that is an opportunity for you know sexual abuse to happen in terms of groping and then there's also the strip search which Technically, in most states, men are not allowed to strip search women. Um, They're supposed to have women strip search women. This hasn't always been the case, and there's actually a a class action lawsuit now happening in Massachusetts where women were strip searched by women, but the entire process was filmed by male guards. So male guards would be in the room with a video camera filming a woman being strip searched by another woman. where do we buy that video? (laughs) <laughs> we buy the video. <laughs> no, it, you know, you know, and it yeah, another was extraordinarily what? facetious there because they probably have it for sale somewhere, and it's disgusting. I, the, the, yeah. the, this whole whole issue, by the way, I have to tell you, is new to me because you just take for granted it's prison. The guards are watching women. There's 
the guards, there's the inmates, there's and never the twain shall meet. But I'm extremely I'm extraordinarily naive, and I apologize. And I'm listening to this with both ears, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, and every once in a while I got to crack wise only because it's dark humor. I can't, I can't. My imagination just takes me to really bad places with, with this, and and it's, it's amazing that you have you know taken the mantle the way you have with with this book and and and, and more coming and and um, organizing. Yeah, how do you get these women to to realize there is strength and unity? Part of it is talking with them and letting them know what's going on in other places because prisons are really good at isolating the people inside. So they think, like, well, nothing's going on. Nobody's ever doing anything. And then they realize that people are organizing and they're resisting. And they might be like, oh, my God, I never thought of it that way. Like, you know, like that if this is happening, we actually can stand up and we can do something or we can at least start networking and talking about this and figure out what we want to do as opposed to thinking, I no, this is the way it is. It can never change. You know, like, we're just going to have to put up with this forever and ever and ever. I mean, in Alabama, women tried to organize not as successfully against the rampant sexual assault in the women's prison, and they weren't as successful, and they were really frustrated by the lack of response they were getting from the organizations they reached out to. They said that they reached out to, like, the U.S. Department of Justice and got no response back in the 1990s. They said, hey, you know, there's this rampant sexual abuse happening. Can you please send somebody down? And they got some form letter back that was like, this is, you know, we're not hearing you. This this is going on all over the place, so we're not going to bother. But, you know, like, the women have tried. And so I think part of it is getting them to know what's going on in other places. You know, like, what are other people doing? And letting them know that they're not by themselves. And what's, what's happened with sexual abuse and in, in, in the workplace? And I'm an employer, uh, and also I, I, I've been cheating. I've been hiring more women than men. Why? Because they're smarter and more loyal and dedicated. But that's just me. Um, now, with uh, having employed women my whole career, uh, because actually they've been, I picked the best, and uh, you know, for any position, and they happen to be women. That's how it is. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not any kind of bleeding heart, but I will not, because of the way things are, I can't even look them in the eye as an employer for fear of being sued. And it's, you know, you know there's got to be some kind of a mid-ground. I, I understand you, you've got your cross and you're bearing it well. And there are other situations that, you know, women are just getting, and I'm not going to use the word screwed, but it's, it's, it's just awful. I get it. Um, but it's either one way or the other. You know, there's no middle ground. There's no place for me to look somebody in the eye and not possibly or potentially be accused of sexual harassment. And there are many, many unfounded sexual harassment lawsuits out there. So so what happens is, and I, I think that this trickles, and I'm, you know, this has become a discussion and not an interview. It, it, what happens is that uh, it trickles down to everywhere and trickles into the prison system and it trickles into... Well, we're just going to leave it over there because nobody wants to deal with it, and it's or it's too hard to deal with it. You know, I'm I'm afraid. Let's say I, I worked in a prison. I mean, I worked in mm-hmm. a I worked in a women's prison, and I'm I'm not a bad guy, and I, I don't need to be doing that weird stuff. I, I don't need to. You know, you don't uh, want to either. Well, yeah, there's times. Yeah, <laughs> but but no, no, I, I I don't want to. It, it's I want to do my job. But I, I, either I'm inhibited in doing my job to a certain extent because either the law is there or it's not. Uh, if it's not, then, then my 
brethren are doing stuff that I just wouldn't be able to stomach. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it is, then I could be accused of looking somebody in the eye. You know, so so it's uh, it's. I'm, I'm just laying out this. Well, maybe it's discussion now, Vicky. Purposes. Maybe you can clarify this because my feeling is it's so far because the dynamic is so different. The women are so powerless. The men who are in the guard situations are so powerful and have so many things they can use as leverage against an essentially a powerless person with essentially, unless someone steps in, no rights that are recognized. That the, yeah. the, there is no balance there. It's not like being in the workplace where there's some sort of balance. It's uh, extreme uh, the other way. Is there is there a reverse situation? Are some of the guards being seduced by prisoners? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I can see them being there being, and I have heard of situations in which women, again, thought that they were in what they thought was a consensual relationship with a guard. So they were like, you know, like, this person is paying attention to me. We're going to have a consensual relationship. And then when the woman said, you know, like, this is not working for me, and I tried to end it, that's when things got ugly. And she wow. realized, actually, there was a huge power dynamic. There was one case in Michigan, again, the state that has recorded the most sexual assaults in women's prisons, that... Uh, when one woman actually came forward and testified later, she had been in what she thought was a consensual relationship. She, you know, was having sex with a guard. He would, like, bring her little things. He called her all sorts of pet names. But then once she tried to break it off, she said it got ugly. Like, he would physically assault her. He would grab her hair. He would threaten to make life miserable for her. He would sexually assault her. And nobody did anything I, here's a, here's, about here's it. Here's a question I have. Why? Mm -hmm. What was the reason? Uh, and I, this is, again, so damn naive. Why would she want to break it off? I mean, basically, the situation is the guard and her. She's in for 8 to 10 or whatever it is. Um, she's a woman. She's a human being. You know, sex is something that is pleasurable and she likes. And mm -hmm. then she, she ends up involved with a guard. And basically, they're, look, they're not setting up house. They're not planning kids. They're not, uh, you know, they're not, uh, uh, you know, planning their careers. They're in jail. She's incarcerated. They're having sex, and they enjoy their conversation. That's as far as it's going on day one and on day 200. And, you know, what? so what breaks it off? Does she get sick of him? Or, uh, you know, does she want to try another guard? You know, I'm being really gross. It might be that, you know, like maybe they're not having, and maybe she's not enjoying the conversations. Maybe something has shifted. Like if you think about why we break off relationships that to the outside eye, like outside here, you know, like, Somebody might be like, why did you break up with your college girlfriend? She seems so nice. And you're just like, yeah, oh, but my it's, God, it, well, I yeah, but it's, stand it, this. You it's, know, like more, it's more than nice because there's all, all kinds of dynamics that are growing from the original relationship. And they're free. and they're, They can think and do as they wish and plan as they wish and dream as they wish and try and make their dreams come true. Well, there's one no, reason how a prison wall in their way. That, uh, that comes to mind, Vicki, and maybe it's that they, they, in this relationship they start going, you know, they see signs, just like when a woman marries a guy and he's fine the first six months and then she serves corn as a side dish and he beats the crap out of her. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that they see the signs of, uh-oh, this relationship isn't what I thought it was and I better get out of it before it gets oh, even I'm, worse. I'm, and then it gets even worse. Yeah. You think I got something there? Yeah, yeah I think you yeah, so so it could be that. It could be, you know, like any number of reasons, but then you actually do see that abusive behavior come out once she tries to end it. And who knows what happened before that. She might have tried to, like, put yeah. her foot down about a couple what, of things, like being like, no, I don't want to have sex right now, and felt coerced or pressured into it. She might have thought, like, well, you know, I actually don't want to be in this relationship. I kind of want to use this time to focus on me and get my head together before I go out and 
try to like track down my kids and get reunited with them and find a job. So like any reasons that she might have had, you know, obviously get steamrolled by the fact that this other person with so much more power is able to say, actually, no, you don't get to leave. Kind of like the abusive relationship on the outside where a woman's like, I want a divorce. And the man's like, no, you don't. And <laughs> I will do anything in my power. To stop to, you. And they got a lot of power. That. Yeah. Now, when you go into, do you actually go into these prisons and to, to try to get these women organized, to get them uh, to realize that, uh, you know, that they can, if they band together, that maybe they can make a difference without getting individually the crap beat out of them? I don't go into the prisons to try to get women to organize. I let them know what's happening, but that decision needs to come from them because at the end of the day, I get to walk out the door. You know, I don't have to spend my whole life or even like, you know, like part of my life behind bars where then I'm subject to all sorts of retaliation. But then I also let them know, like, I can support you in these ways if, you know, like this is something you want to do. And I can connect you with these groups if this is something you want to do. So it's not necessarily that I go in and I try to. I got another get question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at uh, your website and all the various studies, etc., I think we may run into uh, a situation where there is a great deal of research. There's a plethora of facts and factual information, but people don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe it, and therefore they discount it. Is that is that yes. am I anywhere near reality on that? I think that there is. Um, people don't want to hear things, but at the same time, I think that you know, like talking about these things and constantly bringing them up, you know, like makes people like have to hear at least part of it. And what might what might seem like them just closing their ears and not thinking about that, you don't know what kind of seeds you plant for later on down the line. Like when I was 16 years old, hanging out with my friends, enjoying the like largesse of their, you know, escapades the night before, like we could all like go to the pool hall and, you know, drink lots of coffee and smoke lots of cigarettes because they had $200 in their pocket. If somebody had said, you know, something, 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 crime, you know, prison, everything else, I probably wouldn't have listened, but maybe later on I would have been like, wait, what was that person telling me? That kind of makes sense. How did you get money in your pocket back in those days? Um, Let's see. How did I get money in my pocket back in those days? I don't think I got very much money in my pocket back <laughs> in those days. You know, um, like I was not, you know, like a usual participant in gang activity as you know, like gangs are kind of set up as these patriarchal type of things where the man goes out and gets the money and the girlfriend helps spend it afterwards. Yeah. It's not like I got money, you know, um, or rather the girlfriend and all her female friends got to, like, help spend the money. Yeah. But it wasn't like I, you know, could be like, I have $200 to do what I want with. No, it's my boyfriend has $200 I can do what I want with. <laughs> yes. Um, Hello. Hello. We got to take a 60 second break. We'll be right back. Nice, nice. I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocked in the cradle to rhythm and blues. In my spare time, when I'm not combing what's left of my hair or looking at myself in the mirror going, God, you're incredible. I write true crime books. I also write mysteries and stuff like that. But, you know, I get royalty checks a few times a year, and the bigger they are, the happier I am. And you can help make me happy by buying all my books. Yeah, I know they're not very expensive. You're talking maybe four or five, six bucks in paperback, $2.99 or something like that for an e-book. But it all adds up. Makes it possible for me to, well, take the bus to Outlaw Radio. 
to rent a taxi to get down the hill because of these schmucks will give me a ride. So tell you what, contribute to my life and yours by buying all my books. And while you're at it, why don't you order Vicky Law's book about uh, resistance behind bars in America's women's prisons, or we'll put you in solitary. Crime Uncensored, live from Outlaw Radio, standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. So, Burl, yeah. um, the ha- let me get this straight. So, you want everybody to buy your books because you want to be happy. So, you're expecting <laughs> our audience to make you happy. Is that, is that what we have? Well, no, I don't want to be externally referended completely. Now, so if it, I, it's the comb is here. Yeah, yeah well, like what, the comb hair. What's left of it? Well, I like that what's left of it part. The truth is you have lots of hair. It's, uh, Just that's, thin. That's not your... That's not your problem. That isn't. But, no, no, it's not your problem, sir. But uh, um, we've got Vicki Law, who has uh, got waves and waves of hair the last time I checked. Well, yeah, she had. She could even sell some and make some money and buy my books. <laughs> Send her a, a, I will keep that in mind the next time I sell my hair. <laughs> yes, please do. You're not so, selling plasma to keep alive, are you? Please don't. Well, probably you don't know about Vicky. Is Vicky, in addition to uh, helping these women uh, get off the tuchus and, and, and make some differences in their condition, also works in the literary industry? Well, there you go. She helps people pull their books together and edit and stuff. Well, by the way, uh, necessary. Wait till she, Howard gets his book together. Well, been my, you see, to my book, once again, you know, I can't write my book. and I've, I've had, It's not because he can't physically write it. Uh, he is, um, he's restrained. I have um, been asked by many a uh, large publishing company with large checks to write uh, a variety of books. The one, I, I think we know this, right? The, the one book that I could probably make, well, six figures tomorrow in selling, My 89 Days with Paula Abdul. That'll work. That's the, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that'll sell. But uh, I'm not going to. Not 87, not 88. 89. That's right. Not 93. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't let it get to 90 days. I fired her at the 89th day. I said, I can't have a full three months of this. But the, the um, uh, it's fantastic, by the way, Vicky. You'd, you'd like it as much as I would like your book. So we could exchange. Uh, okay. No, no, you'd like it because she should be in a woman's prison. Sue me. Sue me, Paula. Okay. Oh, I said that. Okay. It was humor, element of humor. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, when when you are not uh, ranting and raving about how horrible things are behind bars, uh, tell us about your, your other career. So let's see. So I'm a freelance writer focusing mostly on women's prison conditions, as you have seen. Um, and I also focus sometimes on looking at different books, uh, some prison books, some fiction. I did a series called Girls of Color in Dystopia, looking at why girls of color never seem to survive into our dystopic future. Like if you look at, say, like The Hunger Games or Divergence, you know, like well, what's going on? Where, well, like, that, you know, that, black chick, just- that black chick in Hunger Games, in the, I didn't read the book, but I saw the movie, she was a psychopath. Very few people bring that up. But she why was she bring, was why nuts. Did, why did you have to bring her color in it? Because that's what she's talking about. But why did you have to mention the color? Because so they would know that this is going along with what she said. If I said that other chick... So does that make you a racist? No, it makes me perceptive. Okay. <laughs> did you see that movie? I did not see the movie. I'm she's, the person who read the book, but did not see the movie. Is she a psychopath so. in the book? She was not. So, so I'm rather disappointed that the movie chose to then portray her as a psychopath rather than as a 12-year-old. Well, they, 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 don't don't they have to round out the third act. So, uh, <laughs> oh, but she was so sad when she died. My dear friend who would have killed her in a heartbeat. In fact, tried to kill her with poisoned uh, bees. Hey, Vicky, do you watch TV? I do. 
I do sometimes. What, what's your favorite stuff? Oh, what is my favorite show? I don't know. Or a couple, you know, you just yeah, I mean, like the cooking channel, or are you watching Pawn Stars? What the... Oh, gosh. Pawn Stars is so sad. Everybody comes in, and they're like, I have this thing. How much will you give me for it? And it kind of just reminds me of this, like, sad state of America where you go in and you hope that you've got that, like, winning ticket out of poverty or winning ticket to, like... You know, like get something big, and then they're like, "Actually, that's only worth fifteen dollars." Before you Sorry. start saying cottage for those guys, they, they they go through a big casting process, so it's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> it's a whole, you know, not to you know, show you how the rabbit comes out of the hat, but you know, it's not. Don't worry about it. They'll be okay. But do, how about in scripted? Do you do you watch anything? Uh, any uh, like Castle or? Did you watch Blacklist? Mm-mm. Good one. Nope. Oh, that's nope. a good one. That's a good one. That's a, yeah. There's stuff that you would like because of just what she writes. I know. Yeah. But I talk about television because it kind of sets a, sets a, a bit of a different tone. What about motion pictures? What, what have you liked it over the last long while? Yeah, I, my, my taste to, to motion pictures is kind of weird. Like, I really like Hong Kong action films, mm-hmm. which nobody seems to know what I'm talking about. Oh, when I'm we, like, you see the latest Stephen Chow movie? And they're like, what the hell? Oh, Stephen yeah, Chow. We, we I know, know, we know about that here. Uh, the great Shadow oh, Stevens okay. will be here shortly. Shadow is a big, big... Yeah, did you okay. see the new version of Old Boy? No. <laughs> see the old version. I saw the old version no. of New Boy. <laughs> you did. Yeah, that's, that's a tweak film, yeah. Howard. I know. <laughs> you got to see Old Boy, the Korean one. If you want to see an incredible action scene. Yeah. That's the strangest right. plot in the universe. Spike Lee did the remake with... Uh, anyway. But see the Korean version and then see the American version. And what okay. else What else motion picture was? What have I seen sort of like recently? There was a very sad one about Oscar Grant where you're kind of rooting for him like the whole time to get his life together and you just have that sick feeling because you actually know in reality how this plays out and there's not a happy ending to his story. Right. Um, so I saw that and I, you know, you I don't want to say I really enjoyed it, but I really, like it really hit. <laughs> like I was like, you know, if I ever went into motion pictures, I want to write something like that. Or, like, the whole time, even though you know, as reality, that, like, this guy is not going to win. Like coming, the whole time you're com- kind of rooting for him. Coming from where you, you've you come, how did you develop your taste buds and, and fine-tune them? Because they're very, very, you know, well-fine-tuned. And normally coming, and I'm, I'm being using a big brush here, but normally coming out of there, it's real tough to develop good taste buds. It's hard to do. How'd you do I don't it? know. I want to say that, you know, like, you know, reading helped a lot. Like, being able to just, like, A, being able to read, which, you know, hopefully every one of my classmates developed to some degree or another, but and I do can't you, be do sure you remember, of that. Do you remember which book you read that said, whoa, this is a way I can find out what the world looks like? I think, you know, as a kid, I just liked to read. And so it was one of those things where I would just read things. Like, I remember reading, you know, like... You know, like books several times just because they were the only books on hand, you know, even if they did weren't your, very your good f- books. Did your folks have uh, bookshelves in the house, books in the house? Hmm? Did your folks, did your parents have books in the house or a bookshelf with books on it? Reason they I, had some books. The reason and then I, we would go to the library and oh, get more books. That, that's but, a, you know, so I, I remember right reading, like, George Bernard Shaw's Caesar and Cleopatra and being totally befuddled by it. But, you know, like. That was the book that was in the house that I was like, oh, look, there's a picture of this pretty girl on the cover. I want to read this. And then I was like, I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> I read it several times. I think I was like eight. You know, nobody reads George Bernard Shaw when they're eight. But I was like, oh, no. you uh, know. The girls in my family did. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I was 12. Yeah, you were 12. Well, the thing is, is that no research shows that if you grow up in a house where even if there's not a lot of reading going on, if there's like bookshelves and books, that the dad, that alone will have an influence on your interest in is books. Is that right? I didn't yeah. Know that. yeah. That's cool. That's important. That, uh, so you're telling me I should build a bookshelf? Yeah, just little... with the great bookends of the 20th century. And even if you don't read them, buy all of mine and put them on the Are bookshelf. you back to selling new books? <laughs> yeah, but, but Vicky's up there also. I'm going to tell people not to buy your damn book. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, just buy Vicky's book. Now, Vicky, tell us about the award your book won. Hmm? The award you won for your book. Ah, so I won the 2009 Prevention for a Safer Society, or what's it called? I should know this, right? Um, the Prevention for a Safer Society Award for the book, which basically, because the book looked at organizing and resistance and also looks at the fact that putting so many women in prison actually doesn't do anything to keep our society safer. Like, we're still seeing... You know, more women go to prison, so it's well, it's a business. Vicky, it's a business. It's a business. I got it done. I can't believe Boy, this hour has gone by way too fast. Vicky, will you come back again in the future and be on the show again? Yep. Oh, that's great. Great, yeah. great. We love you, Vicky. Keep it up. Keep it up. Did you have fun? Thanks. Okay, bye. Okay. Uh, smart uh, woman. Smart woman. What is? Uh, what's next? A uh, heat wave. A tropical heat wave. With Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, Magic Vandella, the Demons of Decadence, right here on the beautiful and talented Outlaw gentlemen, live from the soapily beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. The following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True crime uncensored, I am the legendary Burl Bear, Howard Lapidus, executive producer of Celebrity Rehab, and Dr. Drew's Changes His Shorts, or whatever the name of that new show is. Oh, stop it already with that. Come on now, get it right. Uh, Dr. Drew's Life Changers... Every day at 3 o'clock, 3 and 3.30 on the CW Network. Which stands for Cowardly Women. The CW Network. <laughs> Do you know what it stands for? Country Western. No, absolutely not. Not even close. Uh, it has nothing to do with country. Believe it or not, it, and this is where branding is important because everybody says good country What does Western. it stand for, Howard? CBS and um, Warner, Warner Brothers. Brothers. No one That's would ever it. know and no one would ever care. And nobody cares. <laughs> That's, right. That's exactly right. Matt, great job hitting the post. <laughs> the guy's a professional. He ought to be in radio. <laughs> Or a magician, one of the two. Gotta be in pictures. He can make that competition disappear. Welcome to True Crime Uncensored. Ron Francell was on the show last month, and we were so impressed, we said, come back next month, and he did. So <laughs> we've got him on the phone. Uh, Ron, question for you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where the feedback's coming from here. We'll get rid of it. Your son isn't listening, is he? Uh, no, he isn't. Well, if in case your son uh, wants to listen to a repeat of this, I'm going to do a countdown in five seconds. And on the count of five, son, put your fingers in your ears and go la, 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 la for about ten seconds, okay? Okay, all right. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. Your mother is a calculating rackle frats. And if Mother Teresa had been there when she did that to your dad, Mother Teresa would have whooped her ass. How about that? 
Hey, that's, that's great. What a great endorsement. I'm going to put that on the cover. <laughs> I think Burrow's going to put it on his tombstone. <laughs> yeah. There we that's go. Brutal. Yeah, brutal. that was brutal. I mean, uh, as, yeah. uh, as Howard's uh, dear friend once said, what did your dear friend once say, Howard? Uh, our mutual friend who's now gone to the great beyond, the comedian. Oh, the great Sam Kinison? Sam Kinison. Oh, oh you know, I, I, I don't absolutely, I do not condone it. I don't believe domestic in violence, domestic yeah. violence. I understand it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad to, for the audience. I'm going to hell, I laugh. Yeah, you oh, laugh. we're all going. Yeah, look, yeah, when we get there, Sam will be performing and we get free tickets. <laughs> don't worry about it. It's all covered. I got it all worked out for you, Ron. Yeah, don't people, worry. people don't know what happened, but Howard knows because he was just reading the introduction to one of your two brand new books, The uh, Sour Toe Cocktail Club, where you tell the heart-wrenching story of the fast one pulled on you by your formerly beloved the, spouse. The, when I said to Burl, Ron, and by the way, we, we've given a chance for Ron to even say hello to the audience. Hello, audience. There we go. Yeah, all right. What, what, I, what I said to Burl is the way my life is today, if that's the, pay, the last page of of a book, your book begins on what will be my next page. <laughs> and it is frighteningly scary to me because, you know, you sit there and say, okay, you've worked out the 20-year re relationship, and by the way, almost to the day with me, the 20-year relationship, down, gone. Yeah. And you, you know it's over, and you both sleep in the same bed, but this is just a, this is a joke. So, and you know it's over. And you work out when this is going to happen. And for you, it was just before the... You were going to wait till after the holidays. We were going to wait till after the holidays, Be right. Yeah. Because men think pragmatically, okay? Men and women... I want your letters and your emails. Come to the guest book at outlawradio.com and, and, and tell me where to go. Okay, but here's the deal. Men think pragmatically. So, Ron, you sat there. You and your wife said, okay, this thing's done. Let's work out how we do this. Let's get through the holidays. And then you know, there's going to be some bombs. There's going to be some tears. There's going to be all that kind of stuff. But let's get to this part of of, the, of life and these these dates. And this is when we do it. Now we think that way. We think on the macro. Right. But then somehow, it apparently your wife. You looked at her wrong for one second, and she thinks on the micro, and she blows up and throws you out of the house. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, it, it was, it maybe wouldn't have made any difference in the grand scheme of things had it been any other time but right between Thanksgiving and Christmas. The, those two holidays that we were trying to avoid this very thing. So I think that was... Um, you know that, that <laughs> we don't want to. I don't want to. You don't want to start crying on the radio, no, Ron. I mean, that, that added to the pain, which, which ultimately is where this story begins. It's right. In pain and in darkness, and it travels along a long, long, long road um, to end on a day when there is no darkness. You know, when the longest day of the year in the Arctic when the sun doesn't set. And, and I think that that's one of the little beauties of this story. And if I were going back and writing a novel uh, and trying to make that particular uh, metaphor work, I would have done it exactly the way she did it. Because so, <laughs> otherwise it wouldn't have happened that way. Well, that's right. In some ways I'm, I'm uh, grateful for that.
Uh, not in all ways, of course, but so. Yeah, well, just like I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you didn't punch her, but if Mother Teresa would have been there, she would have whooped her raggedy ass and the Pope would have given her a medal. So what you're saying is if you, if, 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 if time had gone by, you went through the holidays, and you kind of landed this plane the way you both were supposed to land it, your life would have just stayed where it was, and you may not have moved to the next page. I don't think so, but I, I certainly wouldn't have had that beautiful metaphor, <laughs> you know, yeah. that... That, uh, well, that's what I'm going for, Ron. Yeah, I, I think that <laughs> metaphors are us. There's a store here in Ventura. Yeah, exactly. You have to right. look back and find something about this that works. Otherwise, you just go nuts. If you're going to look back at all, find something about it that that, that how, you can how, take. How old were your kids at the time? Uh, my son was 13 years old at the time. My daughter is 17 years old. And right. Of course, that plays a role in the book. My son is at a very formative moment. And even though we ultimately saw each other quite a lot after that, it wasn't every day. So well, the, the scary thing, this the scary thing, and sorry about the, about the, laying my, myself over this thing, but my daughter. Don't, don't worry, Ronnie. Does that with every guest? I, I, it's I, always about her. Uh, but, but it's about me. But I do apologize for it. I apologize for myself three, four times a show if, we, if we're up to code. Um, no, but my daughter's just about seventeen. My son's just about thirteen. Yeah. So it, I, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. It, it is awfully difficult for the son. And in many ways, I'm not sure my son has recovered or ever will from what what he might logically see as kind of a betrayal of being set adrift right at a, a crucial moment. Uh, and that's what this journey was all about, this, this, this crazy-ass journey to the Yukon where we were going to find this cocktail that contained a mummified human toe and we were going to test ourselves that way that's the story but the real reason behind all of this i'm i'm pretty sure was was a father in the situation that i was in and the situation you might be in now trying to um reassure himself that he's relevant to his son and uh you know in that and in the conversations we have along the way um, you see a, a father and a son kind of delicately dancing around all kinds of interesting things you take one giant step back from that and you see uh, several generations of fathers and sons dancing with this this same devil so that's at the heart of the story. I know. Are you dancing with that devil anyway? You know, whether the marriage stays together. I mean, how much does the marriage really have to do with the the relationship you have with that boy? Well, if we go way back, if we go to my great grandfather, uh, a man and his wife raising five children during the first part of the last century. Along comes the flu epidemic, and and the mother dies. This father is literally a buggy whip salesman. That's what he does. I know we joke about that, but my great-grandfather was a buggy whip salesman. So he was buggy whipped, as we say. <laughs> he was. Yeah. He was buggy, and he was whipped. Uh, he couldn't take care of these five children, so he farmed them out to family, which was something commonly done in those those times. Uh, and one of those was my grandfather, who was a nine-year-old boy at the time, and he went to live with an uncle and an aunt. He grows up, uh, gets married, and comes to a moment of divorce himself. 
and neither he nor his wife will take care of the the two children that they have, so they get farmed out to family. Okay. Then my father grows up, marries my mother, and while she's pregnant with me, he leaves her. Oh, my God. Uh, I never know him until I'm 30 years old. Oh, there's a a story I'm going to want to, you know, be a bit parenthetic with you, if you don't mind. (laughs) How the hell did that, how did that happen? How did you find him at 30? Well, I, I became a journalist. I, I, not only the curiosity that's at work, but some of the tools for finding facts and finding people. And there was a, there was a, it was a long process, believe me, but especially in the days before the internet. But when I was 30 years old, I met my, my biological father for the first time. What would, is this, was a longing for you forever to do that? Curiosity more than anything, because I was raised by a wonderful man who's still alive, uh, Mm -hmm. my who I consider my father. Sure. Now, I'm going to inter- interrupt you just a little parent, another parenthetical within your parenthetical. The famous act- actor, uh, Jackie Cooper, who I'm sure you're well aware of, uh, his father abandoned uh, Jackie and his mom when they were they were young. And he never uh, saw the guy or met the guy or really wanted to meet the guy. Jackie's driving across the United States in his car, and the car breaks down in the middle of nowhere. He, he has the car towed to the nearest garage and is being repaired. And the repair guy says, you're the famous actor Jackie Cooper. And he goes, your father lives in this little town. He's right over there, about a block away. Uh, you want to meet him? Now, this seems like divine intervention, right? It's like the hand of God has reached down and broken the car so Jackie can meet the dad and resolve everything. And Jackie says, hell no. <laughs> well, there's a... There, there, let me let me tell an acronym or an acronym. <laughs> uh, uh, just a, a a little story here in between before I finish. But I, I stumbled across the grave of a or, or a monument to an old desert rat down in Arizona, and he had died not long before I found this little monument. And uh, uh, I came back to Phoenix that night and got on the internet to try to find something about him. But what I did find was a posting that was two or three years old from a son whom he had abandoned, that the old desert rat had abandoned. And I suddenly realized that I was the only person in the world at that moment who knew the man was dead and that this son was looking for him. And it suddenly became one of my purposes to try to reconnect them, which I ultimately did. It took a long time, but it happened. And the son's reaction was essentially... Oh, it's okay. I didn't think much of him anyway. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> After all that work. Well, the yeah. strange ones are really just strange. Strange, yeah. yeah. Uh, one quick story, then we're back to your story, is... is uh is the, the, the two two guys approached me because they've got a story, and their story was on the Today Show and uh, the Dr. Drew Show, and uh, I mean just everywhere. And here's the story: uh, guy's got a second family. He's actually in Hawaii with his second wife and his two children from a previous marriage, and the kids are you know in their late you know ten years old or something like. They're kids, and uh, they're on the beach, and. They want to take a picture. So the wife, the new wife, steps back and he's going to take a picture of the, the father with the two kids. And one of the guys cleaning up, you know, around the, the pool says, hey, wait a minute. Do you want me to get them? You guys get, get the picture and I'll take the picture. You hear that all the time. That happens all the time. People are nice. So they get in the picture. He takes the picture, hands the camera back to the guy. And 
the guy says, thank you, and you need to detect some Massachusetts accent, which is not hard to detect, which he possessed. And he goes, so, you, you know, you're from Massachusetts? Where are you from? He goes, I'm from Lunenburg. And he goes, oh, I'm from Fitchburg. Fitchburg and Lunenburg are two little, little towns. Close and the, they're right next to each other, with, you know, right next to each other. And the big town is Fitchburg. I mean, that shows you how small everything is. And Fitchburg is a, happened to be a radio market I worked in early, early on. But neither here nor there. So they start to, you know, one's about in his late 30s and the other one's in his early 30s. The, uh, the, 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 the guy that volunteered to take the picture. And they're talking. And they're starting to play, you know, do you know this guy or do you know that guy? And they get down to, uh, do you know uh, Dickie Flaherty? And the other guy goes, of course I know Dickie Flaherty. Dickie Flaherty's my father. The other guy goes, Dickie Flaherty's my father. (laughs) (laughs) This happened last April. True story. Yeah, well, I believe it. And it's just bizarre that they, you know, they kind of knew each other existed, but, ne- you know, living within three miles of one another, but never met. the father had a bicycle. The father had a bicycle. That's, <laughs> that's the moral of the and, story. And that's how the story is. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, that'll be the last line in the book. Yeah. And the father had a bicycle. A bicycle. So meanwhile. Yes, back to uh, our, our dear friend Ron Franchel, the author of the Sourtoe Cocktail. And book. being as this is Outlaw Radio that you're listening to, the Outlaw Radio Network, his other brand new book, The Crime Buffs. Guide to the Outlaw Rockies. And we're going to come to that, I hope, very soon. Right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> we're going to get to that right this minute. He didn't minute. finish his story. Well, let me, let me, oh. yeah, let okay, finish, finish the story, story, then we'll get to the Outlaws. And so so I, I find my father, and I, I have known him ever since I was 30 years old, but here I was divorcing and leaving my 13-year-old son uh, and I, 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 sort, I, I, I suddenly saw myself as one of a long line of these accidental bastards who, who just always gets left. And here I was leaving. And great, great title for a book, though. By the way, accidental yeah. bastards. I well, mark that I down. Well, and I think that it, it's it's apropos. And what I ultimately undertook in the book, and which is part of the story, is this. Uh, inclination on my part, maybe even an obsession on my part, to do what I can to break that cycle. So that becomes part of the story. So, so now let's talk about outlaws. Well, but one second, real quick, and then we'll, we'll spend the rest of the show on outlaws. But because the, I mean, the sourdough, the sourdough cocktail club, fascinating, interesting, not necessarily in the outlaw genre, but uh, just an amazing piece of literature. We love it, and uh, it's uh, helping me through my situation. <laughs> he doesn't feel so all alone. <laughs> oh, I don't feel alone at all. It's a, I'm, and I'm, I'm interested, you know, in the relationship between the father and well, the son. Let me put a little cap on his my my son, uh, Howard. You, you've met, and yep. Ron, you haven't, but he's been here on, on this show, a very high-functioning autistic uh, youngster. Yep. He mistakenly believed that when people got divorced, it was against the law for the mom and the dad and the entire family to ever be together again in the same room at the same time. And uh, on is his, it? Yeah, it is. No, oh, it's not, okay. actually. Oh. But a few, one of his birthdays, uh, his Only mother... There's a restraining order uh, well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, his, uh, his mother and I and his sister and his grandparents uh, all got together for a birthday party for him. And it was the first time we'd all been together, and it all went fine since the divorce. And he was so emotionally overwhelmed by having the whole family together peacefully at the same time on his birthday that he just like I've been going emotionally looked up and said this makes my heart so happy 
Well, that's a beautiful story. Yeah, I didn't know where you were going with that. Yeah. I'm anyway, not... Crime Buff's Guide to the Outlaw Rockies. I'm still not done on the South. Oh, then. come on. <laughs> we'll get back to it. We'll do yes, we'll a short-term yes, we'll short tease. Yeah, we'll we'll get back to the heart-wrenching story of children abandoned by their parents. <laughs> that is well, not you know, the story. Me, and men kicked out of the house about... by their virulent, vitrulent, petulant ex-spouses. And, and let me just say this about it. It, it, it. it ends up that the book is quite funny, I think. And and and, and yeah, I like the part where you're vomiting in the snow in chapter well, one. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, as it goes from that dark moment toward the light, um, it, it gets better and funnier and more lively, and and you get to see that transition happening. So in the end, that that start that that beginning in darkness which is which is terrible darkness uh quickly gives way to a, a lightning and and so it, it 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 has that it certainly has that but it's really confined to those first few pages well i'll tell you i've been reading the crime buffs guide to the outlaw rockies which has a cover that well doesn't quite reveal how good the book is. <laughs> how do you like yeah. that way of saying it? <laughs> we can talk about that in a second. Uh, yeah. I want to get back yeah. to <laughs> put down the cards. I'm kidding. I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. Shuffling the cards. What this? Well, you tell us what the book is, rather than me telling what the book is. What is this book anyway? What mean you by this literature? Oh well, it, it's it's really a crime book. It's a travel book, and it's a history book. And it's all in one. It's this literal and whimsical exploration of about 400 sites that are significant to the crime history of Colorado and Wyoming. It's a follow-up to last year's Crime Buff's Guide to Outlaw Texas. Uh, the, the series has apparently captured the fancy of the publisher, Globe Pequot Press, and so this is the second one. Next year we come out with uh, Outlaw D.C., so uh, who knows when this will end. Are you going to do it in Nevada? I know Matt Allen will be out there driving through northern Nevada following following your book, yeah, <laughs> Road by Road. We will, I'm pretty uh, sure. Are you going, seriously, is this something, because uh, now all of a sudden I... I You're thinking the, of a TV series. Well, the other side of me kicks in like a lunatic, <laughs> and and I know that the, the former uh, Planet Green channel, which is Discovery's turning, is going to be a semi-travel, and it's as outlaw and travel is a, a sensational idea. Yeah, well, don't talk about the idea, someone will take it before Oh, you they're not going to take it from me, I'll have them removed. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have them vomiting in the and, snow. <laughs> no, and then we'll have one more site in Encino. <laughs> oh, there you go. No, this, this one's for Ron and I. That's, we're going to yeah. do this show. <laughs> Actually, anyway, if you, if you go to uh, the Rockies and you take this book and you got a GPS, you can follow along and go to every one of these criminal sites, and there's a story for every one of these locations. And I'm going to ask you about some of these, and I think we're going to take a okay. break here for about 60 seconds. Okay. Come back, and I want to talk about murder at the Brown Palace in Denver, okay? We'll okay. be right back in 60 seconds. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. 
It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoke and drink and interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow. Now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Thank you. Murder at the Brown Palace got Ron Francel. Ron. Well, hey, I didn't write it. I just told the story. Yeah, you didn't commit the crime either. No, I didn't. I tried to stay away from it. What happened to uh, Howard's microphone? Someone must have been doing some editorializing and killed his <laughs> mic. <laughs> I was gone. Oh. So the the uh, the TV show is going to be called Outlaw GPS. Hey, there you go. Okay, it has to be short for TV Guide. <laughs> no, you always think. I always short. thinking all the time. No, I've, I've already called my guys. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> oh, you're in, Ron. Don't worry. It's your show. All right. Burl's got a job writing on it, and I'm just going to take credit for everything. It's fantastic. <laughs> Not unusual. That's speak- that how producing goes. Yeah. Yes, sir. And speaking, <laughs> this this will resonate with you, Howard. Uh, if uh, if Isabel Springer was alive today, she might have been Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Explain absolutely. to us why, Ron Francel. Well, uh, this is this back goes back to 1907 in Denver, and and um, I think so. I think this, this Isabel Springer uh, is the. Um, wife of a of a local rancher millionaire named John Springer and she's 20 years younger than he is but but uh she's uh you know a high living socialite and uh she moves into his mansion they also have an apartment in the Brown Palace a famous famous hotel still exists in Denver anyway she's carrying on but she's not just carrying on with one guy she's carrying on with more than one guy and one of them is uh, oh, a sort of uh, the 1907 equivalent of uh, of a NASCAR racer or an Indy 500 driver. His name is Tony Von Full, and he's a balloon racer. <laughs> he wasn't full of hot air. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Uh, and if he were, he would have been deflated at the moment <laughs> that he was shot by one of Isabel's other lovers. Um, it was a it was a rather complicated little uh, thing that put them in the same bar at the same time. But uh, the, the 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 trial that resulted, the murder trial against Frank Henwood, the shooter, ultimately just uh, becomes a high society trial. Uh, it, it, it's it's one of many, many, many trials that have been called the trial of the century. But uh, you know, it was a young. Century. Well, they revealed all of her nasty, lurid letters. Everything came out. Yeah, Absolutely. she was writing some pretty heavy-duty porn. I, I, it, it seems that she was. Yeah, 
for that time, uh, maybe even for this time. <laughs> you know, but uh, but uh, Henwood ultimately is convicted and and uh, executed. Something that happened fairly uh, fairly quickly at that time. But uh, Isabel is uh, divorced almost as quickly by John Springer uh, and uh, kind of disappears from history at that point. So uh, she was she what lived to be uh, thirty seven, didn't make it to celebrity rehab and uh, died of uh, cocaine and alcohol. Until it, their great grandson Jerry Springer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well I don't know what her relationship <laughs> to Jerry might be, but uh, I do think she might have been on uh, celebrity rehab. <laughs> yeah, she would have qualified. Yeah. And that's one of the locations the high society love quadrangle turned deadly at the elegant Brown Palace in nineteen eleven. There's so many. Then you have some other weird characters in here. Cockeyed Liz. Oh yeah. I mean, there there are all kinds of really interesting people that drift through these pages. You know, we've got the the famous ones there. You you can't do this kind of book and and skip Columbine or Ted Bundy, who was you know, who has a major uh, a major presence in Colorado. Uh, Matthew Shepard. Uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the shooting of Spider Sabich by Claudine Langer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Charlie Starkweather, who was ultimately stopped in Wyoming. Uh, you've got names in here that everybody would, even non-true crime fans, <laughs> Bat Masterson, Doc Holliday, Tom Horn, uh, Ken Lay, Machine Gun Kelly, Dog the Bounty Hunter. He's not buried yet. He's still alive. So tell us how you, you know, you set, once again, because uh, I guess... uh you, you learn how to hit the road rather, you know, kind of organically. Uh, yeah. And so off you went and hit the road in the in the West and started to find these places and find these stories. Uh, tell us about the, the digging process and how you would find the story once you got to where you thought you were going to go. Or how did well, you, what, to, what told you, I want to go here to find Story X? Well, it... it, it it kind of happens in the reverse. Now, first, I grew up in Wyoming and worked for the Denver Post, and so th- th- this is these are my home states, uh, even though I live in Texas now. But um, I I started by scouting, you know, the likeliest uh, stories that I wanted to tell in the book, uh, and and then when I felt like I I had what I the the the, the basic core of what I wanted to write about. Um, I was able to identify, in general, that there were spots associated with this. Yeah, you know, the the, the buck rail fence where Matthew Shepard's body... Well, he was still alive when he was found, but where, where he was found crucified on that buck rail fence is going to be a significant spot in this book. So that's on my list. Uh, going there... Uh, was absolutely necessary, partly because I'm a, uh, I'm just an old school journalist, and I believe in being there. Uh, it also gives you some different perspectives that find their way into the book. But I literally would lay my GPS device on the spot of any of these places that I needed to write about. So, uh, in this case, in uh, the case of Outlaw Rockies, my wife and I took six weeks. We jumped in a, a borrowed pickup, and we went to every single one of them. 
uh, over a six-week period. We camped. We, you know, we did. We had the greatest time that you could have with your wife in the same truck. I, I, I must. You have a lot of fun with a woman in a pickup I, I, truck. I, I, I know I, that. Is this is this wife number two or? The, yes, my second wife. Who, so you went and you did this again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so did you, Howard? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so no. No. I just no. I'm, I'm. I admit. You know, there won't be a third because I'm just not very good at this. Well, if that you know that takes us all the way back to the sour toe cocktail. <laughs> yeah, I know that, but <laughs> which I'm fascinated with, but and I'm fascinated with this story too. I, you know, we're going to sit here, ask Matt if we can have another hour. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk about the soap kettle murders. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. Tell tell our audience this charming story. Well, you know, there was uh, in 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 Colorado um, this family, uh, and what happened? Well, it <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hard to put into perspective. Let's let's just say that Farmer John Bush and his fourteen-year-old son Otis vanished from That's the farm, right. and when the police came to look around, they saw a lot of blood splatters, and they they asked Mrs. Bush. What's going on here? Yeah, and uh, to make a long, well, a short story even shorter, uh, they decide that um, she had killed her own her own son and and uh, husband, and uh, they they chopped they she had chopped him up, put him in the the local soap kettle there at the farm, and uh, made him into soap. <laughs> And then made a clean getaway. And, uh, yeah, they, uh, you know, scrubbed the scene clean, I think. Yeah, well, she only served, what, seven years in the slammer before being paroled. Well, times were different. Yeah, well, what her excuse was is she said that the the kid was caught stealing from her purse, and so the, the, uh, the, the father... Uh, beat the kid to death and then boiled the boy's corpse in the kettle. And she got so mad at her husband that she killed him and did the same thing to him. Right. And then right. picked the bones out and just kind of, you know, made a few 99 and mm, 44% pure bars of soap. And, wow. And now that's that's one that came to me on the road. It was that was it, it, very different from the others. Uh, where where I kind of wanted, I kind of had scoped out before, and I knew where I was going to go. This is one that came to me on the road, and I can't even tell you at this point how, but um, it, it, it fascinated me, and I said, well, I need to find this farm. And a little bit of research on the road took me to the farm, uh, but along the way I, I found a woman who had written about this case, and it turns out that her, I think, niece, Still owns the soap kettle. Oh, how nice! Yeah, so it's kind of like a tourist attraction. Yeah, exactly. Visit the soap kettle. Wonder yeah. if she put it on eBay, how much she'd get for it? What do you think? Well, more than Johnny Carson's couch. Matt's been trying to sell that for about five years. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, it, 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 it would have to have a big backstory. You know, it's one of those things. But uh, it, there's a picture of it in the book. Uh, it it you, you find these little things all over. In California, it doesn't matter. They're everywhere. But um, that's part of the beauty of the book to me. I mean, really, these are dark stories, but this there's a certain whimsical quality to it. And, you know, you know face it, and we don't often get to talk about a true crime book that, that's entertaining, you know, that's, that's fun. Uh, so I think that's part of what distinguishes these little travel books.
in 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 the book, what's the what which story do you like the most as far as fun goes? What's the f- most fun that you had with the story, or the the story that it did it yielded the most fun? Huh. Well, that's a that's an interesting. Uh, there there are some interesting little stories. There's there's the the story, for instance, of. Uh, uh, in near Leadville, Colorado, which is a big mining, uh, a big mining district, and uh, the, the, the wagon trains, a heavily guarded. You remember the the war wagon movie with John Wayne, I think, and how this fortified wagon that would carry gold. Well, it was like that. They they would, you know, every so often they would bring a load of gold or silver off the mountain to market in in uh, oh gee when was it it was uh, 1870s 1879 uh, the, these shipments begin to be uh, robbed regularly by the same robber and and they come to the conclusion that this must be an inside job because somebody has to be telling this robber or telling somebody who's telling the robber when the shipment is coming. So they they decide to set a trap and and they let the word go out that a shipment is going out on a particular day. Uh, the, the the wagon takes off and as expected the robber jumps out and holds it up. But from the wagon pours a posse and they shoot the robber to death. Uh, among them is a deputy who pulls the mask off the robber and realizes they have just killed his wife. Oh, my God. And he's so embarrassed by this that yeah, they think. bury her beside the wagon road in this rugged part of the Colorado Rockies. And to, to this day, her... Her headstone is there. You have to kind of hike to find it, but it's there. And uh, uh, I, he, you know, <laughs> to me, it was just kind of a a fascinating little human story. That that's uh, right. But if you saw the movie, you'd go, "Oh, come on!" Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like yeah, so but much. I, I just like the, I like the way the story. But you tell the story well. I mean, because the reveal I never expected. Didn't see it coming, and, and uh, which makes it a, a, just a wonderful story. And I can see how it definitely fit in the book. Well, and and there are, there are a lot of those. There's um, uh, in Longmont, Colorado, is a grave of a uh, an Eastern European guy. He's actually from Transylvania. Uh, and and he he was a coal miner, and even before he died, there there were these whispered rumors about him possibly being a vampire. Yeah, what was this thing about vampires taking control of you over telephone lines? <laughs> I mean, true, that's, true, true, true story. I mean, that happens all the. That's why true I well, that's why I use a cell phone because yeah. there's no telephone lines. Okay, that's that's something you believe, Earl? No, no, I just read it in your <laughs> book, though. Okay, because I was thinking we could call Dr. Drew. And- <laughs> yeah. Dr. Drew, we got vampires on the line. <laughs> Take a bite out of crime. We'll be right back in 60 seconds on True Crime Uncensored.
Carl promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand-new dirt bike if she'd murder her employer. You know that. It's my book, Mom Said Kill. The kid didn't get the dirt bike. Well, guess what? The book is now available as a digital download from Barnes & Noble. Mom Said Kill by Burl Bear, the new digital edition. And you know what? Even in the digital edition, the kid still doesn't get the dirt bike. Mom Said Kill by me, Burl Bear. And I love me to pieces. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer <laughs> and sometimes Marie Mackey Esquire. He's so predictable. Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. Who in turn is produced by... Who in turn is produced by Lori Downey Jr. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Hi, I'm Burl Bear. He's Howard Lapidus. Yes, I am. Ron Francel is on the phone with us once again, author of two brand new books, uh, The Crime Buff's Guide, excuse me, to Outlaw Rockies and The Sourdough Cocktail Club, and of course, other brilliant, incredible books, most famous, I should buy bugs you, maybe you'll wind up presenting your most famous book, The Darkest Night. Which made you incredibly famous and one of the most gripping books I've ever read. That's cool. Oh, thank you, bro. We'll pass on that momentarily. If you haven't read that one, go buy several copies and give them as depressing Christmas gifts. But, bro, you know that he, Ron has been compared, and we have talked about this before, to uh, the likes of Truman Capote. Well, he's not as gay as Truman. Well, what's, what's gotten into nah, you? We, we say flamboyant. What's, what's the matter? He's not you? as short either. Some sort of a... <laughs> and also, there's a difference between Ron Francel and Truman Capote in that Ron Francel is more of a real journalist than Truman Capote. Because Capote dramatized and fictionalized in Cold uh, Blood, where Ron is more of a factual. What, what was what, was Truman Capote? What was he before he wrote in Cold Blood? Before he fictionalized on that, he was a journalist. And yeah, yeah, he claimed to be a journalist, uh, but not in our classic news sense. I mean, he he would wrote he wrote for magazines. Of course, he was already famous for Breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. But, uh, what you know? You called yourself a. Old An old school journalist. Is there, is there such thing as a new school journalist? Yeah, sure there are. They, What's they, that? What is it? Well, I think a new school journalist would be inclined to approach a book like Outlaw Rockies by cell phone, uh, by email, by Internet. Uh, they, they are more likely to say, hey, I can find these spots with satellite imagery and a few calls uh, on my AT&T call anywhere free plan. And and they tend not to be the shoe leather kind of of journalist that, that you know is, is more classical. Well, are they walking in different kind of leather? Uh, well, yeah, they, they probably. I mean, I mean they're, they're still the guys you're talking about are still doing the work. I, I it sounds so. like. Well, I, I, I so. see. I mean, I, I tend to think that new school journalism is a figment of somebody's imagination. Well, you know, the citizen journalist thing, I, oh. I'm, I'm a little nervous about. I honestly don't want to fly on an airline that has citizen pilots. I don't want to go have a, my neck surgery with a citizen surgeon. I did that uh, and twice. I don't want to be represented in course by a citizen lawyer. Right. I don't think I want my news from citizen journalists. But that's the direction. That's one direction that news is going. Well, as you are aware, in Texas, if you are a blogger or write for a newspaper, you could go into the prison and interview a prisoner. If you're doing an in-depth book, you can't. Sure. What was that? 
That's the rule in Texas because they say, well, uh, it's harder to show credentials if you're an author. So when I went in to do Fatal Beauty and I interviewed uh, uh, Rhonda Glover, I had to go in as a friend and not as a journalist. Couldn't go in there with tape recorder, memo pad or anything. Right. And I I faced, in a similar case just recently, faced a similar uh, restriction. And we're still working on it. We're still trying to find out how we can get around that. But, uh, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. A blogger can go because a blogger can associate with Hey, can I finish telling the story yeah. of the vampire? Please, Please do. The, the, the thing that's interesting about this site that's in, in Lafayette, Colorado, is that that he died, uh, and, and I think he was probably itinerant, or not itinerant, but, uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't able to pay, and, and so he was buried with somebody else, uh, somebody also, I think, from Transylvania. But, but uh, even at the time, because they'd already suspected he was a vampire, word went out that, that before they buried him, somebody drove a stake through his heart, just to be sure. Mm-hmm. Right? And so if you go to the grave today, you, you can find his headstone, but growing out of the grave at about the place where his heart would be is a beautiful tree. <laughs> and so... Uh, you start to think, well, now isn't that interesting? So it's stuff like that that, that make it fun. You know. Well, that's not the same fellow who was in that cult where they thought vampires were taking you over through the telephone wires, is it? Oh, no, no, no. I know who you're talking about now. Uh, he disappeared. Uh, they, they found his body in the crawl space under his ex-wife's house. Right. That was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He was a filmmaker. Yeah. Well, that'll teach you to get into film. Hey, uh, Ron, do we have any more open stories? <laughs> you, know, you know, when we talk to you, it's not like it's an interview. It's like this continuous conversation that I, I absolutely enjoy. Yeah. Um, I wanted. What did I want to ask? Damn. Probably something like how. No, do you, do you know, you know what I want to ask. I, I'm a kid from the East Coast, and, and I hear about the, you know these towns that you're mentioning in Colorado and Wyoming. Never heard of these towns ever. Uh, because from the East Coast, we think that there is, you know, all there is is, you know, Denver and maybe Salt Lake City, Vegas, and then Los Angeles. Right. <laughs> and that's it. And so all these towns, your Lafayettes, and what kind of towns are they? What? Uh, I mean, are they really, uh, is, was it a hotel, a people. gas station, and a, and, a, and a city hall, or is it like Wasilla, Alaska? Or what are these, what are these well, places they're, like? There a lot of them many of them, maybe most of them, are completely recognizable to you. They, they, would, they would have all of those things you just mentioned, and they're likely to have a Barnes & Noble. Uh, Not anymore. Very unlikely. Uh, you know, honestly, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a fairly well-developed area. I mean, there's, a, there's Costco's and stuff like that? There's, oh, sure, absolutely. Oh, okay. I grew up... Running water? They're, they're just far-flung. You know, they're they're not as close together as as uh, you know. I can see no one with. I mean, did, did people go to the movies and stuff and play? I mean, where do you drive? Do you drive to the big city and that big city's Lafayette? Absolutely. I, I mean, uh, in this case, no. Lafayette is really we could we if we stretched just a little bit, we'd say it's a suburb of Denver. It's that close. Okay. But uh, but yeah, head head out of town. Tell give me some of these other places you were at. Oh well, uh, you know there there is Denver, of course. Yeah, well, I get that. Uh, Littleton. Know. I've been to Denver. That's that's Littleton. no big deal. 
Wheat Ridge. Well, those, yeah, but those places are like around Denver. That I know. But you know, being you know, Mr. East Coast, I I don't know. As you get deeper into Colorado, or or uh, how about Ball Town? There we go. Oh, now Ball Town is is a crossroads. I think there's a tavern and a gas station there, and uh, it, 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 that's about it. And it's up in the mountains. My wife and I parked, and we walked a good distance to the grave. And uh, uh, maybe I'll put up on my website a little later the picture we took. Uh, it's kind of camouflaged, but it's still there, and you can still see the old wagon road that passes there. Um, but there are places like Lusk, Wyoming, L-U-S-K, okay. TV. Mm-hmm. Um Lusk is probably famous in Western lore as being kind of the center for uh, bordellos. A lot of its history centers around a couple of bordellos that were there, and the madams were among the most famous in uh, Wyoming history. But it was, oh, ten years ago or so that uh, Microsoft came in and completely rewired this little dinky town on the plains of Wyoming in the least populous county of the United States and um, and made it, uh, you know, more high-tech with fiber optics than any other place in the world. What was their motivation there? Uh, marketing, like everything else. But they're in the small <laughs> town, you know, they're wiring up the smallest of towns. They did that in Redmond, Washington. They wanted to be able to show that, you know, this is accessible to everyone. They wanted to be able to show this is what's possible. Unfortunately, soon after they finished the wiring, they found out that there was no way for them to just sort of plug into the rest of the Internet. There was no way for them to actually make this thing work. So this while this town is... Uh, wonderfully wired. Uh, it it hasn't come into play that way. Yeah, the tavern that you're talking about at the crossroads, uh, the cheap, uh, cheap Heidelberg, bloody, ninety nine cents. Bloody Marys. Oh, yeah. uh, they got that the low cost Bloody Mary because we're, we're right there. Oh yeah, you know you want to visit that place. Okay, you, you've heard of Jackson, Wyoming, because a lot of people. Oh yeah, Jackson, Wyoming is the you know that that we you know we hear Jackson Hole. Everybody's got their big house there and properties. You know was once uh, free, and then, you know, now it's ridiculous. Now it's not. Yeah. That's supposed to be a great place. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Is it a great place, Ron? It is it a wonderful there? place. It's beautiful. Beautiful, it's, he said. Yeah. It's supposed to be Right gorgeous. on the edge of Yellowstone Park. Yeah, the bears come by, play pinochle. It's wonderful. Not even confused with pinochle. Only on Thursdays, bro. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a Thursday night. Pan. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so you've got places like that. Down in Colorado, you have wonderful places, Fort Fort Collins and, and, uh, you know, Colorado Springs. On the western slope, you have uh, uh, just some wonderful... You've heard of Aspen, of course. Oh, of course. Ted Bundy was there. Murdered uh, people in Stoke. Hell, I was was in Aspen, and I made the run between uh, Denver and Aspen in the middle of the night once in a snowstorm. That was fun. But I didn't see much. I want to talk real fast about uh, Big Nose George uh, Parrot. Parrot? How do you pronounce his last name? Parrot. Yeah. Yeah. The doctor, I mean, this is what you call modern uh, science that is most humanitarian. They lynch this guy, and then the doctors decide they want to uh, dissect him to you know, understand more of his criminal behavior. <clears throat> and uh, what they, they actually did is they dismembered his body, and he kept it in a salt-filled whiskey barrel for about a year. And uh, 
They what? They turned his skull into an ashtray, his skin into a right. pair of shoes. Yeah. It sounds like Al already. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. They, they, they turned his. They were right. They turned his his skin into a pair of shoes. The doctor who did it uh, later became a Wyoming governor, and to his inauguration, <laughs> he wore those shoes. How sweet. Yeah. De- Democrat or Republican? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, it's Wyoming, so you must have been a Republican. I, uh, Just checking. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make much difference when you're wearing a dead man's shoes, man, a dead man's skin. says a lot about you. And they also made a coin purse out of his scrotum. Not the first yep. time that's been done, mind you. They did the same thing to Ned Kelly in Australia. No, it's nothing. Right. I, I care some change. Yeah. It's a small change. Oh, Where's the rim shot where we need it? <laughs> wow. Ah. Well, and, and the shoes, the skull, uh, a lot of these artifacts are still on display in this little museum in Rollins, Wyoming. You can walk in there and, and see these things. The The rest of Big Nose George was found in this. Uh, the whiskey barrel was ultimately buried someplace. What the hell is going to get me to Rollins in the first place? I mean, what? Your GPS I, and a Jeep <laughs> and his wife. <laughs> I mean, I'd go. Sounds interesting. But how, where is that near? Uh, it's in between Rock Springs and Laramie. I knew you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. That, boy, that really pinpoints it for you, doesn't it? Yeah. Is this anywhere near Thermopolis? No. <laughs> I love that name for a town, Thermopolis. It must be hot. Uh, it's Hot Springs. It's a Hot Springs town. Thermopolis. Yeah. And a favorite hangout of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as a matter of fact. So what you're saying is uh, when I get tossed, I should maybe take this little trip and go from town to town and find my way. Well, I'm, I, we're getting back to Sour Toe Cocktail Club. Well, now, because we have to bring everything back to some place. That's just the way we do it. I think the road is very therapeutic. It's where it, it became, after my divorce, uh, a sanctuary. So it was entirely natural that when it came time for this big journey, for this quest that I took with my son, that it would happen on the road. And and to, to this day, I like the road. I find great solace there. Uh, and I, I, I do think that for people who are going through any kind of uh, troubling moment, that, that there's all kinds of therapies available. And one of them is just being forced to be with yourself for a long period of time in a kind of alien environment. If, uh, if you could take a, a week right now just by yourself and go someplace, hit the road, where, where would you go in America? That, Besides yeah, the Bangkok sex tour. That you haven't been, and is there anything outlaw about what you'd do? Probably not. There probably wouldn't be anything outlaw about it. I think it would be... Um, I, I don't know, but it would it would go deep. It would go someplace where there, there there would be a purpose to it that maybe even I'm not sure when I begin what it is. Where where do you think it would be? Where and I'm talking physically where? I, I think it would be it would be west. It, it would be toward the west. It might be toward the mountains. Uh, I don't know. There's so many. There are so many things. I, I don't go anywhere that I don't find, that I don't discover something. And sometimes it's about myself. So you're endlessly curious. Yeah. 
unfortunately. Yeah. Well, next well, that's, time that's what makes him a true old-fashioned journalist. Do you promise the next time you get on the road, maybe you'll drive into Los Angeles and join us live in the studio? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, just ask Steve Jackson. He was here in person. He'll tell you we had a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, Steve. Yeah, Steve's a traveler too. Yeah. And, uh, uh, we. That I think Steve and I are very close. We lived oh 14 miles apart huh. in Colorado. So uh, we're. Well, Ron, I was just noticing, looking back in the archives, we got about four hours uh, of material with you in the archives. I was thinking out of uh, putting out a CD of Ron Frenzel's greatest hits. Four hours of bonus material. Uh, in all of those four hours, I'm not sure we have even 30 seconds of great hits. <laughs> I think maybe we do. 